Thank you for uh, Saul and for uh, the way you came into his life and turned his life around. We pray for anybody here this morning who might be like a Saul of Tarsus, uh, living their life and not expecting that at all that they would ever become a Christian. We pray that you would intervene in their lives too. Amen. Yeah, so if you're visiting this morning, you might be thinking to yourself, um, well, it's great what Jeffrey's doing. I'm here to support him. And, uh, you know, it's fun also to come to church and look what they do and sing their songs and hang around and uh, have cups of tea and uh, hop into the water when it's 12 degrees outside. And... <laughs> but you, you're thinking to yourself also, I would never do that. Uh, but this morning I want to propose to you this, that there is a thing about Christianity, a thing that's in the Bible, a pattern in the Bible, and a pattern in history, and also a pattern that I've experienced um, in my own life, that what happens is the most unlikely people become Christians. This morning we're going to look at this unlikely person, Saul of Tarsus, who became a fully devoted, transformed, Jesus-preaching apostle and Christian. He was born sometime, we think, between about 5 BC and 5 AD. We don't know exactly, but roughly the same time as Jesus, in fact, and was living in Jerusalem when Jesus was around Jerusalem too. Um, he was a devout Jew. Um, and Tarsus, where he's from, is well known in the Mediterranean, uh, especially famous for his superior university life. So you might think it's a bit like around here, you know, a university culture. And uh, Saul studied Greek philosophy, especially the Stoics, which meant that he was good at mingling with uh, non-Jewish people, the Greek, Greek-speaking people especially. He was comfortable amongst the intelligentsia, but he was also a strong scholar of Judaism. So he described himself as of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This is the way, the way he described himself. Um, as touching the law, a Pharisee, he said. So he's really pious and smart and probably annoying. <laughs> He'd studied in Jerusalem the school of Gamaliel as well, a very important rabbi, and he would have learned classical literature, philosophy and ethics, so he was kind of like a Renaissance man as well. Bit of a know-it-all. Could talk on Radio National. So this... Um, kind of religion that he had was very strongly monotheistic. Um, there's one God, there's the law that we follow, we follow it tightly, we defend this law, um, and Saul lived for that. So when this Jewish sect arose, called the Christians, that were talking about this other bloke called Jesus, who was the son of God, well, people like Saul were angry and wanted to stop it. Uh, in fact, you could say he was so angry that he became kind of like a Jewish extremist in this respect. He was uh, going out of his way to, to silence Christians. He, he got involved in shutting down Christians, in, in uh, making sure that message didn't go anywhere. Later in his life, um, Saul, once he had become a Christian and, and uh, called himself Paul, he testified to the King Agrippa and he, he describes himself like this. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. 
on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I tried to force them to blaspheme. So he's sexually dodgy with the law as well. Anyway, I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So the first time we see Saul mentioned in the Bible, which is in Acts 8, Stephen, who had been a helper to the apostles and a godly man, a humble, he became the first Christian martyr after Jesus, and he'd been stoned to death. I'll read a bit of that. Acts 7, verse 60, chapter 8, verse 3, says, Then he, that is Stephen, fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep because he'd been stoned to death. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He was hardcore. You know, it's not, he's not just a bit against it. He's, you know, actively, violently, corruptly against it. So when we get to the start of chapter 9 in Acts, he's off doing that. He's uh, on his way to Damascus in his campaign of systematic terrorism, I think you could say. You know, kind of a terrorism. Religious persecution at the least against the Christians. So we get at the start of chapter 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priests and asked them to, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul is what you would call a religious conservative. He doesn't want anything to change. Uh, Stephen, on the other hand, who, who he'd just seen killed, Stephen was a radical. He, wanted, he was suggesting the temple could go and stuff like that. Uh, Saul could not stand for this, for crazy talk. And he's breathing these threats of murder because he was hostile. He hoped that they could be killed. It was only about two or three years, we think, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, this is all happening. So, you know, lots been going on. But it's interesting that... Um, Christianity seems to be spreading. We know that it had gone east uh, and west and south to the coast, uh, uh, north to Samaria. Uh, and uh, now Damascus is about 135 or 100, about 160 kilometers north northeast of Jerusalem. So Christianity is spreading. Now, just to put it in perspective, you know, we planted Mary Creek. 15, 16, 17 months ago, whatever it was, you know, can you imagine if after two years or three years, you know, what we'd done here had spread to Ballarat and Bendigo and was going all around Victoria? That's pretty quick moving, you know? And we're not talking about it in a context where there's as much mobility as we've got now. And so what Saul's trying to do is prevent it going to Damascus. So he's going out there to pull them back. Verse 2, it's interesting, says that he's after men and women. And I think that's significant as well. And because 
The Christian faith was capturing the minds and the hearts of men and women. It wasn't some peculiar religious thing amongst these fishermen bloke who just like to hang around and remember the past or against these spiritual women who like to light candles and you know, meditate under the tree. You know, this was taking over. And these people were called at that time the way. Um, you know, they had this message that there are, there are different paths to life, but this is the way to life, this way, the way of Jesus. It's a name they used in the early years, the way of the Lord, the way of God, the way of salvation. So Paul, Saul goes to the high priest um, to try and get these extradition orders, to try and arrest them. He's, it's kind of a complex legal system at that time with the Romans and the Jews. So this is kind of what he's trying to participate in, somehow work out a way to get them into jail or killed. Now, this description of Saul sounds pretty negative. You wouldn't want this description of yourself to go down in history. But um, the person who's writing this isn't some enemy of him. He, he's not um, uh, got an axe to grind. It's actually Luke, who we later find out is one of his close partners in ministry and, and uh, friends. So this is a, uh, a person who knows him very deeply but also loves him, describing him this way, um, using... Saul's own words. So that's where our story begins. And what I want to do is pull out from the first nine verses, specifically, of this Acts 9 passage, four things about converting to Christianity. Um, And as we think about Jeffrey and him being baptised today, maybe that's a way for us to help think about what he's been doing um, and what he's doing today, um, what he's declaring today, at least, in front of us. First of all, we can observe from this passage that conversion is initiated by God. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This light's like fireworks going off, saying flashing around. Um, in another version of this story with the end of Acts, Saul says he was um, brighter than the sun. You know, this is noon and this is occurring. So this is a real epiphany, you'd say, an appearance of God. Um, this was the last resurrection appearance of Jesus so it's like an apocalyptic event. This had happened a few times with Jesus. Well, specifically the, the transfiguration. There's this kind of appearance of Jesus in the sky. But I know you could be sure that Saul would have been thinking about um, the Old Testament and the way God appeared before the prophets. Did crazy things like appear as a burning bush in front of Moses. Um, maybe these images have flashed through his mind all of a sudden. For whatever reason, God had decided at that point on that Location on the road to Damascus, he would intervene in Saul's life. He had known Saul before Saul was even born. He was an idea in God's mind. And he had chosen Saul for this life to be a a Christian and to be an apostle. And Saul had lived maybe 30 odd years and now he's ready. God's going to intervene and turn his life around. Saul didn't do anything to deserve this. In fact, he did everything to deserve it, to be punished to judgment. And, you know, it's good for us to remember that even though we might think that we go out there searching for God, you know, we often use this spiritual seeker language, in actual fact, it is God who goes out looking for us. Jesus tells the parable of the shepherd and he said, you know, it's like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one goes off and the shepherd goes looking for that one and brings the shepherd back. It's a great image of what Jesus does for all, all of those who believe. He goes out and brings them in. Because God is gracious and he's loving. 
and he wants his children to come home. So this morning, as we think about Jeffrey in his baptism, we need to remember that baptism isn't a special ritual that Jeffrey's going to earn God's love, did nothing to earn God's love. God graciously chose to give Jeffrey that love. It is God who's given him the right to be a disciple. It is God who's given him this gift. And what the story of Saul shows us is that nobody is a hopeless case. Christian, Christianity is one long rags to riches story where the rags is the rags of our sins, um, the shame of our rags, and the riches is the riches of being in a relationship with Jesus for eternity, having your sins forgiven, being part of the church. We're particularly conscious this morning of um, the two men, um, the Bali Nine men, who have been given notice of their execution. And um, we've talked before here about um, Rose uh, talk, talk, shared with how she had been there and visited them a few years ago. And um, you know, when I read, especially about Andrew Chan, the um, the guy who was the ringleader of the heroin smuggling, and then had converted to Christianity and become a pastor and a chaplain to the prisoners. Um, you, you know, you can see that rags to riches story there. Um, God can change a heroin smuggler's life. He can change a Christian killer's life. But he also says, changed my life. I'm neither a, I've never been a heroin smuggler or a Christian killer. And sometimes it can, can make the mistake of thinking that God only saves the really bad people. But in actual fact, the Bible encourages us to remember that, you know, we shouldn't rank sin like that. We should realise that we're all short of God's glory. Um, that the, 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 the shame in my heart and the, the ache of sin in my, in my life, the, the ways that I have not been able to live in the way that God wants me to live, all of that doesn't matter anymore because of the gift that God has given me of forgiveness and the transformation that I've experienced in my life as a Christian. So he can change, and he can change Jeffrey's life, and he has changed Jeffrey's life. He's taken him from this kid who grew up in a Christian family who just probably took it for granted, who foolishly hopped on a boat, you know, could have died. But God powerfully worked through him and used all the things that happened in Jeffrey's life to uh, make him who he is today. And there'll be lots of Christians in this room who could tell you their rags to riches story. They won't necessarily look as kind of glamorous or as Hollywood as a, a murderer to a apostle, but still is very significant and powerful and just as glorious as far as God's concerned. So whether you've got the sins of jealousy, the sins of anger, the sins of not submitting your life to God, the sins of lust, the sins of not loving people as you should, you might look neat and tidy on the outside, but you know yourself. You know your weaknesses. You know that you can't change yourself. You've tried. But even though you're a hopeless case, God still wants to intervene in your life and can change you. So this is why for Christians... We should pray for everyone. Uh, you, we always think, oh, that person will never become a Christian. My mum or my dad or my brother or sister or my friend, my colleague at uni or my um, person I sit next to in the office, they would never become a Christian. But this passage shows us that that's not true. 
The second thing we observe is that um, conversion involves a personal encounter with Christ. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The light's intensity was such that he was bowled over and he landed on the ground. Um, if you've ever been standing at a rock concert and it's all dark and then they suddenly turn on all the lights, you can be like, whoa. You know, that's kind of, I imagine, a little bit like that. He would have been afraid. But this is no rescue scene. This is no, sorry, this is no judgment scene. This is a rescue scene. This is Jesus coming down to save him. And Jesus says, the risen Jesus appearing as these bright lights says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, this other account where Saul recounted, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, this is a common expression in Saul's day. Um, the goads were like these used by farmers for oxen and they were like wooden planks with spikes on them and, and sort of kept the, the oxen in the right direction. And the saying meant, you know, you keep doing these things and it, it keeps being hard for you, isn't it? You, you kind of keep facing these, these, these blockers and problems. I know what's going on for you, says Jesus. I know that there's stuff eating you up inside. Um, it's highly likely that Saul might have even heard Jesus preach um, before Jesus' death and resurrection. We don't really know that. He never says it, but he's in the same place at the same time and he's interested in these things. But more than that, Saul would have been carrying around guilt around the murdering of Christians, I'm sure. He would have been carrying around the guilt of not keeping the Ten Commandments, even though he thought he publicly said that he was a law-abiding Jew, he would have known the laws that he was breaking. So he was carrying that shame, and that's what human beings do often. We walk around with all this shame. But the grace of God was working in his life, in the life of Saul. It's interesting um, that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, he says. Because at first glance, this is a strange thing for Jesus to say because Saul hadn't been persecuting Jesus. Uh, there was no evidence of that. And Saul knew that and Jesus knew that Saul hadn't been persecuting Jesus. But what this shows is that there's such a close relationship between Jesus and the church uh, that when someone persecutes the church, they are in fact persecuting Jesus himself. In Jesus' story of the great last judgment, he says, it'll be a bit like the, um, the farmer, the shepherd, who puts the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. And he says, he will say to those on his right, for I was hungry. These are the righteous people on judgment day. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and, and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. When you serve the poor and struggling Christian brothers and sisters, you serve Jesus. Why? Because Jesus identifies so tightly with the church that it's like they are intertwined. Saul himself would go on to explain this uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. He says it's like a husband and a wife who uh, get married and have sexual intercourse and become one flesh and they're so intertwined that if you attack one, you attack the other. So if you were to come over to me and Joe and then punch Joe in the face, 
you know, it'd be like you're punching me in the face. And I would say, look, I've been doing three years in the gym with my personal trainer. Look out. I can lift 90 kilos, almost 100. That's the, that's the kind of intimacy that Christ has with the church. So this is why he says, why are you persecuting me? This is personal. This is not some far off distant God. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. While he doesn't realise that Saul is seeing the full glory of the resurrected Jesus, he asks who he's speaking and says, Lord, not because he's suddenly a Christian yet, although it's sort of happening, but because he's being respectful of this vision, this character. It's interesting that Jesus also uses his name Jesus and not this is the son of God, this is the Christ, this is the son of man, this is the son of David, this is the sacrificial lamb, not that Jesus would say that. But he says Jesus because he's being personal. And probably in that moment Saul's going, the Christians are right. He did rise from the dead. That's all true. The evidence is far too compelling. And Saul is jolted into the realisation that Jesus is alive. So Saul had a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, Jeffrey has not had fireworks, as far as I know, and a light that's brighter than the sun on the road to Preston Station, which is near where he lives. He has not had that, and neither have I. And most people I know have not had that kind of miraculous intervention. Nevertheless, uh, that was, I think, a special thing for Saul because of who he was, the apostle to the the Gentiles. But for all of us who become Christians, you need to have a personal encounter with Jesus. You You need to forgive, you need to ask for forgiveness for your sins. You need to pray and talk to him and say, I want to follow you. He's not some abstract God that's out there just, you know, in the soup. He's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the best way for us to kind of relate to him is through Jesus. Thirdly, conversion involves surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. Verse 6, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Jesus tells Saul what he must do from this moment on. He's a new man because he would later write, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. And in Acts 26, we get a little more of the detail of that, of what Jesus said, that he was to go and be an apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus has called Saul to submit his life to him. And this is what it means to truly know him. The theologian John Frame, uh, he says, Knowing God is knowing him as Lord. Knowing that I am the Lord, says, says Jesus. And knowing him as Lord is knowing his control, authority and presence. So becoming a Christian and being baptised isn't just about doing the right thing. It's not just about being a good person. It's not just about, uh, you know, doing what your mum and dad says, as Jeffrey told us. Uh, It's actually about saying to Jesus that I want to hand my life over to you right now. And this is a symbol of what's happening. And this is hard. Some of the things you might not want to hand over. You might not want to hand over your career or your income or your um, relationships. But that's what's required. Jeffrey has clearly trusted Jesus in a way that many of us couldn't. He will continue to do this, I'm sure. 
through his life and I believe he will continue to trust him to the end of his life. And just as Jesus has called Saul straight away, he's called him and then he's commissioned him to do a ministry um, for all of us who've been called by God to be in a relationship with him, uh, he commissions us too. There's a kind of an automatic uh, thing that follows on from being a Christian is that you have a ministry in your life. Um, Saul would later write, um, when he was a Christian apostle, he wrote, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, so God took Saul's characteristics, his intelligence, his academia, his experience with the Greek philosophers, and he used all this, his leadership skills, and even though his character was all upside down, he transformed that and turned him into an apostle, and he can do that for anyone. You might not be an apostle quite like Saul, but you, know, you can do other ministry. <laughs> so conversion to Christianity means submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and this means listening also to his commission that he gives you. And you might spend your whole life kind of discerning that and continually changing that. What has Jesus commissioned you to do? Good question. Lastly, conversion includes the help of the church. So verse 7, the men travelling with Saul stood there speechless, as you would, they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone, which is interesting. Saul's bystanders did some kind of experience something different to what Saul experienced, but there was definitely something going on. And uh, this shows that it wasn't just Saul having a kind of a freak out in the corner, but it was actually um, an encounter that, that the bystanders could witness too. Um, so verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul's blindness is an outcome of this kind of divine experience that he had with God. It's not so much a judgment. And it gives him time for him over the next few days to reflect on what happened. And ironically, while he is blinded physically, there's a sense in which he can really see properly for the first time. At the start of this passage, he was walking to Damascus to kill Christians and now he's continuing towards Damascus as a Christian, blinded and holding someone's hand. And it's what God does. He humbles us when he enters our life so we can realise how much we need him and what he's done for us. He sits in darkness for three days. He fasts. He processes what's taken place. He feels sorry for his sin. He realises he got it wrong. He's preparing himself for baptism. He's preparing himself for his commission to go and be an apostle. And he's on the way to meet Ananias, and, and, uh, who was a Christian who would help him, and, and he would also meet Barnabas. And, and these guys are taking a huge risk, aren't they? Um, why are we suddenly helping this guy? He's been killing our people, but they were being faithful to God. So when people become Christians, they need the help of the Christian community. Uh, you can't just be a Christian on your own. It's a lie to say you can be a Christian that doesn't go to church. It's not true. You, you're not part of the body of Christ. You're missing out. And you'll be weak and you won't be able to survive. One of the images that baptism is, as I've said, is that entering into the church. We will, be, we will welcome Jeffrey as a member of the body of Christ, that body which is intimately intertwined with Jesus himself, like husband and wife, the body whom Jesus fights for, 
and defends. When people convert to Christianity, it is a miraculous and wonderful thing. Let's thank God for what he did to Saul, to Jeffrey, to billions of other people throughout history. And let me leave you with a reflection from Saul who became Paul. Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Is there a Saul of Tarsus here? Perhaps there is this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so intertwined with us as the church, that you fight for us and defend us, that you love us like a groom that lays his life down for a bride. And pray that this morning you will help us to know that and to um, love you more and to bring glory to you. And thank you so much for what you've done in Jeffrey's life, in Saul's life, and in our lives. Amen.